I'm not saying I'm okay. <laughs> uh, amen, amen. It is the truth that we have no one to fear for the Lord is What if you believe that as we think about our passage this morning, think about all the things that you could be possibly afraid of that can bring danger, destruction in our lives. Oftentimes when we look to things in the past, we see that looking to the past, looking for things in the past can, can bring destruction. We were freshly reminded of that even this past week as several explorers searched the, the deep blue seas to, to find and explore some of the wreckage of the Titanic. Tragically, five people lost their lives looking at things in the past, looking for answers from the past. Maybe you've noticed that in your own life. You, you start digging back to things previous, it brings a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of destruction, a lot of demise. It feels like death even. Which, you know, often is the case, also is the case, that looking to things in the past brings life, All right. brings joy, brings help, brings hope. As we look at people's past experiences and people's past problems, and as we look at God's providence and faithfulness in and through all those situations. That's one of the main reasons we study the Bible every Sunday morning. That's one of the main reasons we do what I'm about to do and, and spend the, the bulk of our time every Sunday morning looking to an old book. All right. A book that's thousands of years old because we believe that looking to the past shows us something of God's faithfulness, of God's power, and of God's promises to uphold and sustain and strengthen his people through all ages and for all time. And so even this morning, we look again to this ancient book with old truths to help people from the past and people in the present to deal with pain and problems under the providence of God. If you have your Bibles, you turn with me to the book of Job. And this morning we'll be in chapter 22. We've been working through this book chunk by chunk over the last few weeks. This morning we're in chapter 22 and we'll work our way through chapter 26 this morning as we conclude the, the third of three rounds of debates, of back and forth replies between Job and his three friends. If you remember, the conversation started after Job's long prayer of lament in Job chapter 3. So shocking was Job's language in that chapter to God and about God that his friends felt like they had to say something to correct Job, to counter Job's supposed impiety. You can't talk about them to God like that. And so starting in chapter 4, Job's three friends, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, have gone on a quest to preach Job into proper theology, into a more proper posture before God, and into confession and repentance. And throughout, Job has responded, testifying about God and insisting that there is no unrepentant sin to be repented of. And so, insistent upon his innocence is he that his friends grow more and more incensed in back and forth speeches in these 23 chapters between Job's chap Job chapters 4 and 26. Our text this morning finds us in the kind of last round of these debates or dialogues. And the main idea of this passage this morning is the same main idea we've been kind of turning over over the past few weeks as we've looked at this kind of large section of scripture from chapters 4 through 26. 
You can find it there printed in your bulletin on the sermon notes page. The main point of this passage. Bad doctrine, misrepresented as truth, and good doctrine that's misapplied, both bring more misery to sufferers. Bad doctrine that's misrepresented as truth, and good doctrine that's misapplied, both of those things combine to bring more misery to sufferers. Throughout these chapters, we've seen some good doctrine highlighted. That of God's sovereignty and God's goodness and God's power and man's sin. But we've also seen some bad doctrinal positions held by Job's friends that dominate their speaking. And what's the main doctrinal position that Job's friends keep holding on to and keep holding Job to? All right, pop question, pop quiz. What's the main kind of doctrinal position? Right, that Job's friends keep holding Job to, keep holding on to. Sin, right, sin leads to suffering. Amen, y'all get 100%. I was holding my breath like, please don't let them say nothing crazy, right? <laughs> Amen, y'all been listening. Sin is, the main kind of theological premise is that sin always leads to suffering, right? There's a one-to-one. -one. Wherever you see sin, right, Right, you see suffering that it leads to. Wherever you see suffering, you can trace it back and find breadcrumbs leading to some sin. Job's great suffering, his punishment, his judgment, is due to Job's great sin that he insisted. We'll see that thought continue in this passage. As we walk through this kind of last of, of the rounds of speeches, we'll hang our thoughts this morning on three truths that we see emerge from this text. So three points to the sermon. Number one, we see that searching for sin in others can prove more an indictment on us than on them. Searching for sin in others can prove more an indictment on us than on them. We see that in chapter 22. Second, we see that seeking God's presence and God's justice is not always met with immediate results. Seeking God's presence and God's justice is not always met with immediate results. We see that in chapters 23 and 24. And third and lastly, we see that submitting to God's sovereignty helps us live within our limits. Submitting to God's sovereignty helps us live within our limits. We see that in chapters 25 through 26. First, we see that searching for sin in others can prove more an indictment on us than on them. In chapter 22, after Job has again defended himself against his friend's assertions that his suffering is due to his sin, Eliphaz again fights back. He responds. And this time, more forcefully than ever, Especially because he feels insulted by Job. I mean, at the end of chapter 21, Job concluded that all his friends supposed wise counsel meant to comfort him amounted to a mass mountain of empty nothings. He said, there is nothing of your answers but falsehood, lies, 
by asserting that you know for certain that God operates on a kind of tit-for-tat system, right? That's how he works. What, you're in the, what you've ended up doing is lying about God. Amen. Well, those are fighting words. I mean, hell hath no fury like a friend offended. Mm. Mm. You've experienced that, haven't you? Mm. All right. you? You feel offended by somebody close to you? Saying something kind of sideways when it seems sideways, and no matter what they're going through, you are ready to cut deep. Right? You're ready for the gloves to come off, even though Proverbs chapter 17, verse 9 tells us that true friends should cover an offense. Hmm. We often find that when we are offended, even by our friends, we strike with a counter offense. Pride in us. Well, let us listen to a rebuke. Pride in us won't let us consider whether the rebuke is actually worthwhile and truthful. Pride in us won't let us take or catch any L's. Pride in us provokes us to respond, to defend our honor, to defeat our opponents. Job has become an opponent to his friends. And now they're no longer out to comfort him, but to combat him. And to come out on top in this constant war of words. Eliphaz, in his third speech, triples down on the claim that Job has sinned against God and has warranted the loss of his ten children. He's warranted the loss of all his possessions. He deserves the loss of his health. So certain is he of the fact that he doesn't want Job to even respond anymore. I mean, notice, as we begin this Chapter, the series of rhetorical questions that Eliphaz asked in verses 2 through 5. Uh, raised to make a point rather than to get a response from Job. In, in verse 2, he, he asked, can a man, a mere man, be profitable, useful, a benefit to God? Surely not, Job. Verse 3, is it any pleasure to the almighty God if you are in the right, as you claim to be? Or is it any gain to him if you make your ways blameless as you continually do? The answer, of course, is no. Verse 4, is it for your fear of God that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? No, Joe. I mean, if you truly feared and loved God, you'd enjoy blessings, not punishment. Good works equal good rewards. Bad works equal judgment. Verse 5, is not your evil abundance. Let's be real, Job. Of course it is. There is no end to your iniquities. See how Eliphaz's words concerning Job have steadily declined. I mean, back in chapter 4, in his first speech, Eliphaz started off commending Job. He said in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, that Job had instructed and strengthened many. He said that his words and his ministry had upheld those who were hurting and who were weary. Well, now, in this third speech, there is no commendation and only condemnation. Job, you are nothing but full of evil. And he goes on to list specific charges that prove that Job is sinful and evil. I mean, that's what, that's what Job asked for. Back in chapter 6, verse 24, Job demanded, make me understand how I have gone astray. I mean, you keep telling me that I've done wrong. Tell me exactly how. 
Well, here, Eliphaz says, well, fine, Joe. I mean, I really tried to spare your feelings by being generic, by being broad. But if you want specifics, fine. I will give you specifics. Let me list the ways that you have sinned. Verse 6, you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. Verse 7, you've given no water to the weary and withheld bread from the hungry. Verse 9, you sent widows away empty and crushed the fatherless. Verse 10, therefore, because you've done all these things, that's why all this sudden terror has overtaken you. Eliphaz lists things that the law requires. Exodus chapter 22, verse 26, warns against exploiting the destitute by exacting a pledge from them of their life necessities in order to cover a debt. Eliphaz says in verse 6, Job has disregarded this command. Exodus chapter 22, verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 22 says that you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Eliphaz says in verse 9, Job has broken that command. Job has broken God's law, Eliphaz says. Therefore, God has judged him. But here's the thing. We've said that Job seems to have lived during the time period before the law was given to the people of Israel. So it seems like either Eliphaz or the Bible are engaging in some kind of revisionist history, right? Changing or blurring timelines and events to fit the situation. I mean, how could Eliphaz possibly point to supposed ways that Job broke God's law by mistreating and neglecting the poor and the needy? How, how can you point to, to ways Job has broke God's law if the law didn't exist? Well, the law that God gave the people of Israel through Moses is simply an expression of God's character and God's heart. And as all people are born in the image of God, we all have embedded in our hearts the law of God. Romans chapter 2 verses 14 through 16 tells us that by nature we know and sometimes even do what the law requires even if we've never had access to a physical copy of the law. I mean, basically, everybody intuitively knows that it's wrong to murder, that it's wrong to take advantage of and to overlook the needy. And so all people everywhere are without excuse. But friends, that's why we are condemned, whether we've grown up in churches or not. That's why we are condemned whether we've had access to the Bible or not. We all instinctively know what's right and wrong because God has placed his law upon our hearts. We just choose to disobey God. Eliphaz claims that's Job's problem. He's disobeyed God in these specific ways, and the Lord has responded as he always does when people break his commands. He's severely judged him. Eliphaz's assertions are bold and certain. But here's Eliphaz's problem. He sees things in Job that even God missed. God looks at Job's life 
and says, blameless, right. upright. Eliphaz sees Job's, sees Job's life and says, full of evil and specific iniquities. Did God go blind? Did, did God not notice all Job's mistreatment of people while Eliphaz sees them clearly? Saints, this is why you've got to be incredibly humble and cautious of assuming that you have the gift of discernment. All right. All right. Have you ever said that about yourself? Yeah, I, 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 I got the gift of discernment. <laughs> that you can see people for who they really are while everybody else misjudges them. You just know what their intentions are. You know what their motives are. You know what they're doing and saying behind closed doors. You know them better than anybody else knows them. You know them better than they know themselves. You know them better than God knows them. None of the things Eliphaz confidently asserts about Job are true. But he assumes they must be true because of Job's affliction. I mean, God afflicts those who afflict the needy, is, is Eliphaz's kind of claim. And his strong, untrue assumptions lead him to make strong, untrue accusations. And says, it's the case that many of our assumptions and accusations are also often untrue. Amen. I mean, that sister's seeming dismissal of your greeting on two straight Sundays may not be because she hates your guts and is an inconsiderate pig. It may be that she's suffering with depression and is in, is in the midst of a dark fall mentally. It may be that last week she was struggling with self-guilt after blowing up and her kids in the car right before service and was replaying in her mind the incident all morning long. And this week her mind is running a hundred miles per hour as she leaves Sunday school to try to go serve in the nursery and she just didn't see you say hello. That brother's strong emphasis on justice doesn't absolutely mean that he's abandoned the gospel. It may not mean that he's gone off the deep end and is now embracing liberal theology. It might mean that he's wrestling with how to obey the first and the second tables of the law. How to love the Lord with all that he is and to love his neighbors as himself. Friends, be slow to make yourselves the sole interpreters of actions. And the sole judges of those actions. Amen. As if you are always right. You and I are not always right. Because you and I are not God. Only God truly knows the hearts. Only God is the perfect judge of motives and actions. Let God be God. And let us live as God would have us to live. God desires that we, that we love one another. And 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says that part of what love looks like, part of how love is expressed, is believing the best about one another. Because Satan hates the Lord. 
and hates all that the Lord wants. He is out to undo all of what God desires. And so one of the things Satan constantly tempts us with is to think the worst about one another. That kind of thing pops up in all kinds of relationships. It pops up constantly in our church. So you need to be aware of that and to actively pray against and fight against that in your lives. To not assume that you have the right read on all your brothers and sisters' actions and that you have the right response to those actions. That doesn't mean that you and I can't confront a brother or sister when we sense some things. It doesn't mean that, that you and I can't ask our brother or sister some questions. It does mean, however, that you and I should not jump to conclusions, concluding that they are condemned. You know, in that fact of asking questions and confronting people, it, it strikes me that that's exactly what Eliphaz did not do. I mean, if he thinks that all these things about Job are true, then why is he only now bringing them up? I mean, how many widows and orphans need to be neglected by Job before Eliphaz finally says something? How many hungry and thirsty people need to be deprived by Job before Eliphaz speaks up? If Job is not upright, well, neither is Eliphaz. Because he hasn't said anything to Job about his sinful actions. Maybe Eliphaz thought like we often think. Well, I don't want to ruffle feathers or I might ruin the relationship. But real friends, true friends, don't let friends live in sin. Now, when we see a pattern of sinful behavior, we ought to say something about it. If we truly care about our friends and their souls. Because we actually believe what the Bible says about how serious unrepentant sin is, that it leads to eternal death. And friends don't want their friends to go to hell. So says it's worth ruffling some feathers in order to rescue our friends. It's worth a hard, uncomfortable conversation to try to keep our friends from an even harder, even more uncomfortable condemnation of eternity in hell. We must be willing to speak the truth in love in an effort to save our friends' souls if we believe that they are in peril, they are in trouble. And so in indicting Job here, inadvertently, Eliphaz indicts himself as someone who is neither a good friend of Job or a good friend of God. Because to be a friend of either is to be an opponent against sin and an advocate for godliness. What I think we see here is is that Eliphaz paints himself in a corner that he doesn't sense that he puts himself in and that he can't get himself out from. Job is not guilty of any of the things that he's charged of. But it makes for a convenient cause to all his suffering. And we humans so desperate for reasons for everything will desperately search for them until we find some, even if they can't be substantiated. Eliphaz shows himself here. To either be a coward, afraid to confront Job over the years, or incredibly phony and cruel. 
Only letting Job know now when he's near death what he's really felt about him deep down inside all these years. It reminds me of what you see sometimes in folks at a funeral down south. After the, the, the person then died, now folks who were seemingly their staunch allies and advocates all through their lives, now they throw dirt on their name. You know, he didn't really care about folks in this community. He, he had all that money and only gave a few thousand dollars away. You know, his daddy was the same way. Greedy down to the core. It's probably greed that don't let him to the grave. Alabaster was either a coward, afraid to confront Job, or phony all these years, and cruel now, or Alabaster was just incredibly wrong, which we know to be true. Because God has spoken so favorably about Job, while all Eliphaz can do now is speak unfavorably about him. Strikingly, then, Eliphaz needs to do what he tells Job to do in verses 21 through 30. To repent. Right? He says in verse 21, agree with God, Job. Agree with God about your status. Confess to be the unrepented, unforgiven sinner that we all know you are, and be at peace with God. And then peace will come to you. Verse 23, if you return to the Almighty, you will be built up again. If you remove all this injustice from your life. If, verses 24 and 25, you stop treasuring gold and stuff more than God and turn to him, then he'd be your true treasure and blessing would return to you. But only if Eliphaz would agree with God. Then he'd recognize that Job is an upright, blameless, God-fearing man then he would be at peace and stop being so agitated with Job and making all these false accusations against him. If Eliphaz would re return to the Almighty as he's called Job to, if he stopped treating Job unjustly, if he stopped treasuring his supposed wisdom more than treasuring God, then he would see God's face and make his prayer to him as he directs Job to do in verse 27. He'd ask God for direction and for guidance. But that's something that neither Eliphaz nor his friends do in this entire book. They instead lean entirely upon their own understanding as if their understanding is the gold standard. In searching out Job's sin, they only show their own sins of envy, of pride, of prayerlessness, of callousness, of injustice, of failing to do what they've charged Job with failing to do, caring for the needy. Job is needy. And yet Eliphaz and his friends don't care for Job. But constantly searching for sin in others can be more an indictment upon us than it is upon them. That's one truth we see emerge from this text. Here's another truth that we see come up from this text, emerge from this text. Number two, seeking God's presence and God's justice is not always met with immediate results. Seeking God's presence and God's justice is not always met with immediate results. Having again been delivered a crushing blow by one of his, his friends, his supposed friends, maybe the strongest blow yet as a kind of lifelong worth of specific charges have been brought before him, and again a call to repent and turn from his sin to gain God's favor, well, Job once again responds in chapters 23 and 24. He notes at the beginning of chapter 23 what his friends seem to care little about. 
that he is in constant misery. Job says in verse 1 that his experience is one born out of bitterness that he feels that has come upon him. His hand is heavy. He is weighed down. His body is failing. His family and flock have been snatched and his friends have forsaken him. And it feels like God has as well. But Job so desperately seeks him. He doesn't long for his family's return from the dead or even for his friends to turn back favorably to him. What Job most wants is God's felt presence. He cries in verse 3, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Job wants to be with God. That's what godly people always most want. God's presence. God's nearness. David says in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and that I might inquire upon the beauty of the Lord in his temple. If God is your greatest treasure, then God is who you want to be with. God is the one you want to hear from. Eliphaz claimed that Job's gold and Job's riches were Job's God, what he most treasured. And Job says, no, God is the one whom I treasure. God is my God. And Job anticipates. He, he plays out in his mind what would happen if and when he got an audience with God in verses 4 through 7. Job says, if God would actually allow me into his presence, if he would grant me the favor of seeing and hearing from him, I'd be able to talk with him and lay my case before him in verse 4. Verse 5, he'd answer me with far better than these empty nothings that my friends have answered me with. And I would understand, finally, why all this has happened to me. Verse 6, God wouldn't chastise me or condemn, condemn me or contend against me or fight with me as my friends constantly have. Every time I say something, they're fighting against me. God wouldn't do that to me. No, Job says he will pay attention to me. You notice that? Job's been pouring out his his misery, his soul, his words, and so focused on their response are his friends that they don't pay attention to what Job is actually saying, how Job is actually feeling. You know, one of the marks of a genuine Christian is to pay attention to the people God puts in front of you. We have a hard time doing that, don't we? Folks talk, and we, are, we already formulate our response, our theological response, right? How we might correct, oh, you said something wrong there. I can't wait to get to that. Hmm. Right? We end up overlooking the people God puts in front of us. I want to be thinking about doing that even now. All right? You think about the conversation, the question you want to ask a brother or sister after service. Hmm. Let me encourage you to instead listen to them. Pay attention to them. That's one of the privileges and joys of coming to church on Sunday mornings. Being present with God's people to pay attention to them as God pays attention to us. Job says that God would pay attention to me. And God would clear my name. I would be acquitted, vindicated, and not indicted by God, my judge. Job again insists that he hasn't done anything wrong to bring about all this suffering. And he trusts that if he stood before God, that God would say the same thing. He so hopes to have a hearing with God. He so hopes to hear from God. 
And yet, as much as Job seeks for God, God is silent. Seems distant. Eliphaz said in the previous chapter, in verse 27, that if Job called out to God and really sought him, God would hear him. But Job says in verse 8, as, as much as I seek God, he's nowhere to be found. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. Backward, but I don't perceive him. I look all around and I don't see or behold him. You know, this simple system that Eliphaz and his friends have presented. Do good and get good. Seek God and always find God. Well, it's not always evidently the case, Job says. But it doesn't cause Job to give up hope. Look at verse 10. Job says, even though I don't know where he is, I don't know exactly what he's up to, he knows my way. Mm. <laughs> Isn't that a sweet thing? He knows my way. It's not that he knows where Job is or where we are, you know, Temple Hill's way, right? No, it's not way as far as location. No, Job is saying, against all of my friends' accusations, right? God truly knows my way of life. God truly knows my conduct. And listen to Job's confidence here. That when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Job sounds a lot like the Apostle Peter. Who, writing thousands of years later to a group of Christians enduring suffering and trials, says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, in this you rejoice. All right. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now you hear all the distinct components there? The trials are necessary for believers yeah. to test our faith. Not, not to see if we have faith or not, but to prove, to show the genuineness of our faith all along. To show just how pure, how genuine, how deep and strong our faith is. Amen. Just like gold. Is tested as it passes through the fire and it comes out on the other side, shining brilliantly, not consumed, showing it to be pure gold. So our faith is tested like that. God tries us, tries me, Job says, puts me through this fiery trial, but I am going to come out on the other side of it. I am going to come through it. And when I do, when he has finished the days or weeks or months, or years, or decades, however long it lasts, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. All right. My faith in God still standing, still sparkling, showcasing how strong and genuine it is. Amen. You, you see, a disingenuous faith falters under trials. And only in it for the stuff faith that treats God like a vending machine walks away from God. When he sends the fiery trials that take the stuff away. But a deep faith in God that deeply loves and depends on God stays with God even when everything else seems to fall apart. Mm. 
Satan said it was impossible. People only worship God for what they get from God. So take away all Job's stuff. Take away all Job's health. He challenged God in chapters 1 and 2. And Job's faith will immediately fail. That Job will curse you to your face, God. But that didn't prove true. And here we are, months on end. All Job's stuff gone. All Job's health nearly gone. His wife can't stand him, and his friends seem to hate him. And the God he clings to is far away, it seems. But Job trusts that God is at work. All these things are trials from his hand. And Job is still clinging to him and testifying of his track record and his trust in the faith that he's shown in the Lord. I mean, look at verse 11. Job says, my foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Right, Job is testifying of his walk with the Lord. One commentator labels these verses here, the fruit of a clear conscience. All right. You know, you, when you walk with the Lord faithfully, you can have a clear conscience. And Job was able to say, I, I'm not being perfectly. He's a sinner, no, no, no doubt. But I have lived a faithful life before the Lord. And so I can confidently say that my faith will come through this trial, testifying of its pureness and of its genuineness. And I shall see God who will one day ultimately vindicate me. I think we see here that the genuine faith is not based solely on feelings. Job felt very much distant from God. He didn't feel like God was near him at all. I wonder if that's your experience this morning. How you feel this morning as disappointment after disappointment after disappointment seems to dominate your life. Another negative pregnancy test. Another miscarriage. Another rejection from a potential employer. Another rejection from a potential suitor. And yet you've prayed for all of these things constantly. You've prayed for a job. You've prayed for a spouse. You've prayed for a baby. But heaven seems hard of hearing. God feels incredibly distant and silent. Well, friends, your feelings need not lead you to believe the Lord has left you. God has never promised that we'd always sense his nearness and presence. Let me say that again. God has never promised that we'd always sense his nearness and presence. But he has promised right. that he will always be present with us. Right. Jesus said, I will never leave you right. or forsake you. So that even when we feel forsaken and left by God, as all the kind of painful experiences pile up, we can know that he is for us and not against us. Amen. Even if immediately we don't sense it. Job knew that he lived for the Lord. And he 
trusted that one day, even if not now, he'd be with the Lord and be justified. He trusted that his faith would not fail and that one day the Lord would honor him. You know, we today can have the same hope. Amen. Can have the same confidence before God. A faithful life grants us that. It boosts and emboldens our confidence. And that's why the Apostle Paul can say in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against me. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul, like Job, knew that he lived a faithful life, and so it emboldened him even as others might criticize and judge him. God, he says, is the ultimate judge, and I am confident that he will find me faithful. But even more than our faithful life, our ultimate confidence is based on Jesus' flawless life for us. You see, no matter how faithful we are, we all have fallen short of God's glory because of our sin. And yet God was so good to us to send his son, Jesus Christ, who lived faithfully for us every step of the way. He lived not just a faithless life, a faithful life, but a flawless life. He lived a faultless life. He lived a perfect life in our place, the life that we should have lived. In all of his 33 years, every second of every minute of every hour of every day, Jesus obeyed every single law that the Lord commanded. He never broke any of God's laws, and yet he laid down that perfect life and endured the suffering and the death that we deserve to die. Amen. He endured the, the death of abandonment and rejection and wrath from the hand of God. Jesus was buried, but he rose up three days later showing that his life and his sacrifice were sufficient payment for the sins of all those who would turn from their sins and put their trust in him. Through him, all those who do that, who repent and trust in Jesus Christ, will be declared righteous in God's sight. Amen. Vindicated in God's sight, just as the perfect son who suffered these things rose vindicated in the Lord's sight. Friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you are still in your sins and have no confidence that the Lord will vindicate, justify you, then most important right now is that you turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ. We don't do an altar call here at Temple Hills Baptist Church, right? We believe the Lord can convict your heart and convert your heart right from that burgundy seat. So even right now in the silence of your own heart. You can pray to the Lord. Lord, I believe I'm a sinner. I believe I need a Savior. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to be that Savior who loved me and lived for me and died for me and rose again that I might be saved. Help me to trust in him. Talk to somebody around you after service. We love to spend however many minutes. We'll miss the members meeting. I can't, but other people will miss the members meeting to tell you about Jesus. All right, we want nothing more than for you to know the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself. In Christ, we can, with Job, trust in God's plans for us, even when we can't trace his hand in our lives. We can trust God's presence in our lives, even when we don't feel or see it. We can trust that one day we will be present 
with him. And yet, notice that's not just a solely a warm, fuzzy feeling for Job that, that he'll be with God's presence or in God's presence. And Job goes on in verse 15 and says that he is terrified at the thought of God's presence. I mean, what's going on here, Job? Would you be happy before God or horrified? Well, both. <laughs> Again, Job is kind of an emotional wreck all throughout. He's kind of tottering and trying to feel and express his, his experiences. He really does long for God's presence. But Job does not treat God as many Christians today treat God. Casually. Lightly. He doesn't think God is his homeboy. He seems to think that God is actually big. He is one and unchangeable. And so once he starts on his course in Job's life of destruction, I mean, who can turn him back? He's God after all. That's kind of Job's thought. Yet even in the darkness of God's silence and Job's suffering, Job says in verse 17, I am not silenced. He's still talking to God, seeking God out, even if he doesn't immediately sense him. Seeking God's presence isn't always met with immediate results, even for the righteous like Job, Amen. like us. And seeking God's justice isn't always met with immediate results either for the wicked. In all of chapter 24, Job shifts his focus from the righteous to the wicked. And he says that in the immediate sense, it seems that God overlooks justice and allows the wicked to act without punishment. How many ask in, in chapter 24, verse 1, why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? Why doesn't God speedily judge those who do wrong? In verses 2 through 12, Job observes the many people who, who wrong the downtrodden. He says some move landmarks, seizing territory and seizing people's flocks. They take the little that the widow and the poor have and they force them into deep poverty. Job notes all this abuse and oppression towards the vulnerable, and yet he says in verse 12, God charges no one with wrong. Eliphaz claimed Job had done all these things. That's why he's suffering. Job replies, well, a bunch of people really do do all these things. Not me, but people really do, and yet God doesn't judge them at all. He doesn't hold them accountable. I mean, in verses 13 to 17, Job lists other evils that people do. In verse 14, the murderer rises early before the sun goes up to kill the poor and the needy. He's eager to take life. That same man turns from murdering to thieving once the sun goes down. Verse 15, at night, the adulterer joins the thief to do their dirt under the cover of darkness. And what will be the result? We'll drop down to verse 18. And here what Job's friends confidently assert. Job says, now you say, my friends, that immediate judgment is going to come upon them. Swiftly their portion shall be cursed. And verse 19, Sheol, the place of, dead, of the dead, will quickly snatch them up. But that's just not the case. Look at verses 21 and 22. These people do incredibly wrong. They do incredible evil to the weak and the helpless, and yet God 
prolongs their lives. Hmm. Immediate justice doesn't always come, as Job's friends claim. I mean, we experience that truth today. We witness terrible and heinous crimes that are committed in our community, in our country, across the world, that deprive people of their things and that deprive people of their lives, and yet little consequence, no justice. Multiple murderers are left on the streets of Temple Hills, and the police never catch them. They never spend a day behind bars. Families are grieving and mourning for years because they never have felt justice being served. The wicked, it seems, as you scan through all of life, escape God's justice. But Job says that's only the case for a little time. Hmm. Verse 24, they are exalted a little while. Which in our perspective seems like a long while. They are exalted a little while and then they are gone. Then they will be cut off. Job has progressed beyond the point of seeking immediate payoffs for the righteous and immediate punishments for the wicked. The kind of system that his friends have been so locked into. Immediate rewards and punishments are not the way the world works, are not the way God always works. And we see this concept come up time and time again over these discussions. And it's good for us to repeat them time and time again because we often live the opposite of the truths that we see. Mm. Right? We keep seeing here in the, the conversations between Job and his friends the idea of delayed rewards and delayed punishments. We often get wrapped up into what's happening or not, not happening today. Right now, we often get wrapped up in what we sense or don't sense today and what we see or don't see today. And it tempts us to question God's presence, to question God's power, to question God's goodness. When our faithfulness only brings what feels like more pain and problems. While we witness other people's rebellion seemingly being rewarded. I mean, they lived a good life. They married, got money, they got a big old house. They are living it up, and they're not living for God at all. It tends to tug on our hearts and create disappointment and doubt and despair. One of the things the book of Job is teaching us is what many of the Psalms teach us. It is what the song we just sang before the sermon teaches us to wait on the Lord yes. and be of good courage as we wait. Mm. The Lord will one day reward the righteous with his presence. And the Lord will one day judge the wicked by casting them away from his presence. Just not now. So we must wait. Mm. Seeking God's presence and justice is not always met with immediate results. Third and lastly, and more briefly, we see in this passage, point number three, that submitting to God's sovereignty helps us live within our limits. Submitting to God's sovereignty helps us live within our limits. This point is more brief because you see the exchange quickly dwindle down in this 
Third round of verbal bouts between Job and his friends. I mean, notice in chapter 25, we get Bildad's third speech, but it's only six verses before Job kind of shuts him down with his third and final reply. And Job's third friend, Zophar, doesn't even bother chiming in a third time. This last exchange centers largely around God's sovereignty and man's limits. Bildad, Bildad recognizes God's sovereignty, his absolute rule over all things. He says in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 25, dominion is his. He sits high in heaven and there is no end to his armies. God is big and above all things and all things are at his disposal. That's true. That's good doctrine. But then Bildad takes that good doctrine and misapplies it. Resorting back to the same old religious script that Job's friends have rehearsed time and time again. In verse 4, he asks, how then can man be right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? In other words, because God is so big and so holy, no human being can do what Job keeps doing, claiming to be blameless. Impossible, Bildad says. When Bildad thinks about the godness of God, and then thinks about little old man, the only concept that comes to his mind is that of human depravity and corruption. That humans are altogether wicked in God's sight. And he says in verses 5 and 6, I mean, if, if the stars and the moon aren't even pure in God's sight, as bright as they are, how much less man who is a maggot, a worm, Bildad thinks and talks a lot like some of us with our partly developed theological statements. In thinking the best about God, Bildad thinks the worst about man, about Job, and actually thinks that, that's, that that honors God, that, that stance honors the Lord. I mean, Job, who do you think you are claiming to be righteous in the sight of almighty God? You are nothing but a worm which is incredibly harsh and sharp, seeing that Job said earlier that in his agony, his body is full of open sores and worms are all over him. What Bildad gets wrong is that seeing and submitting to God's absolute sovereignty and his holiness should lead us to see man's limits. It should not lead us to see people as lousy, as worthless, as worms. I mean, mankind is made in God's image and so endowed with incredible dignity and honor and purpose. In emphasizing God's magnitude, Bildad de-emphasizes man's meaningfulness and degrades Job as nothing. And that's a trap we often find ourselves in, I think, for the kind of skewed, binary view of God and people. God is great, and people are sinful. Again, that's true, but that's not all that people are. All right. People are fearfully and wonderfully made. People are incredibly skilled and gifted by God. 
People are weak and vulnerable. People are different. People all suffer in some way. But when we only see people through the lens of sin, it often leads us to do what Job's friends do, attack people and constantly attempt them to repent, attempt to get them to repent. I mean, some of us would see Jesus Christ suffering on the cross and saying, repent, Jesus. We only see man through the lens of sin. Yes, we believe that people need the gospel, but sometimes they need a hug. Sometimes they need somebody to be present. Continually barking at people to turn from your sin while they are suffering can overlook all the other ways that God is calling us to responsibly care for other people. God has given us so many opportunities to grant people relief, to show them respect, to offer them companionship and comfort, to help them. Which is why Job responds sarcastically in chapter 26, oh, how you've helped him who has no power. I mean, when it comes to helpers, y'all are amazing. How you save the arm who has no strength. Oh my God, how you, among, I mean, you need to work for CCEF, Christian Counseling Education Fund, if you don't know that, right? It's kind of well-known counseling center. Uh, you deserve a doctor of counseling from the best seminary in America. I mean, you've counseled him who has no wisdom above everybody else. You have plentifully declared sound knowledge to people who have no knowledge at all. Not. Lord Job said a few chapters earlier, y'all are really some miserable comforters. You've given no help. And he asked in verse 4, by whose help do you think you've uttered these words? It ain't from God. You speak as if you know him, as if you speak for him, but you don't speak for God at all. And then Job goes on with his own string of words highlighting God's sovereignty. Verse 5, he says, Sheol, the place of the dead, is naked and exposed before God. I mean, he sees everything and everyone. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Not even when people die does God grow dark. Verse 7, Job thinks, thinks of God's great acts in creating the world. And he says, he stretches out the north over the void or the heavens. And he hangs the earth on nothing. Verse 8, Job thinks of God's great acts in sustaining the world he created. He says he binds up the water in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split up under them. Verse 12, by his power, he stilled the sea. Verse 13, by his wind, the heavens were made. Everything is under God's complete control all the time. God doesn't just make the world and like a divine watchmaker, sit back in heaven for things to operate according to plan. Now, that's something of the system that Job's friends thought about God. They believe God made the world and ruled the world, but he made the world to operate on a kind of tidy theological system. Sin leads to suffering and faithfulness leads to fruitfulness. And nothing interrupts that cycle of events. And Job shows a God who was deeply involved in the world. He is intimately involved in every detail of creating and sustaining the universe. Which, again, is a great statement of faith, seeing that Job just said that he doesn't sense God's presence in his life. 
Yet Job trusts that God is very active, very much in control. And notice where Job goes with his recognition of God's sovereignty. It doesn't cause Job to lower his view of man's existence like Bildad, but to submit to God's sovereignty and to see the limits of human understanding. Job says in verse 14, Behold, all these things are but the outskirts of God's ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? We can and should acknowledge and be in awe of all God has done in the world, which evidently is from his hand. I mean, who could do all these things but God? He's powerfully worked in the world. But these things, Job says, all the things you see in the world, all the things you see God making and sustaining every day, Job says these things are just a small whisper of who he is and what he does. Just a small slice. The full thunder of his power, what mortal man can fully understand? We are limited, finite, not capable of fully grasping what God is doing behind the veil of darkness that we currently might see. We can't see how he, like a master scriptwriter and director, is causing all things in our lives to work together for good, for, for the good of those who love him. All things. Do you believe that? The Bible explicitly says that in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Job doesn't exactly see that, and we don't exactly see how all that is happening. But just because we don't see how all the pain and problems, how all the failures and setbacks, how all the disasters and defeats and deaths, how all the losses and crosses are working together for our good does not prove that they are not working together for our good. It just proves how small we are, how limited we are. And saints, that's okay, because we are human. 2,000 years ago, People couldn't see how the horrible suffering of a despised Jewish man would affect anything other than their plans for a Friday afternoon. But because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died, and three days later rose again, all humanity and all of history has been affected. And for all of those who love and trust in him, our eternity is set in heaven, and all our time on earth is preparing us to meet him. We might not see or understand exactly how, but we don't need to. The Lord is calling little us to trust big old him and to trust in his great plans to prosper us, even through all the pain, trusting in his promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would impress upon our hearts and minds the reality that you are working for our good against what our experiences tell us, against what even sometimes friends might tell us. Help us to hold fast to you and to cling to you. Help us to make Jesus Christ our treasure because he has treasured us, given his life for us. 
that we might live for him and with him forever. Lord, help us to embrace Christ as ours forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Amen.